John chapter 19. We happened to finish this uh, chapter last night, so there's hope for us today to get through the whole chapter, actually the last part of the chapter. As we saw last time, Jesus, having given up his spirit, crying out those last three words, it is finished. dies as he came to do. Before that, he spoke to John and told him, Behold your mother, as he pointed to his mother, Mary. And to Mary he said, Behold your son. We're told in the scriptures that from that moment, John took Mary into his home. We thought of it as a very important and significant thing because for all that it's worth, it is to say that Jesus had to die alone on the cross and there was no one else that could bear that burden but him. As we get into the last section, beginning at verse 31, We'll read the text and immediately enter into what John considers significant to point out. And we'll bring the other gospel uh, accounts into, uh, into effect as well. The Jews therefore, it says in verse 31, the Jews therefore because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day. Besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. John is speaking of himself. And he knoweth that he saith true that you might believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Before we begin, let, let me just quickly mention to you uh, the sadness of my heart in hearing about the shooting in Pittsburgh yesterday at a, at a Jewish synagogue, and 11 people being killed. We have to remember always that God called the Jewish people for a reason. And if we, were get, if we were to get right down to brass tacks and look at the book of Romans, we realize that they are one of the reasons why we came to know Jesus Christ. It is for us to love them, to support them, not just Israel in, in the Middle East, but all Jewish people, and to love them. And when they suffer, we suffer. So I say that because we, we have to understand, you know, that when we get into the scriptures, sometimes, sometimes people look at scriptures and they say, well, the Jews did this and the Jews did that. But we know one thing, they did it blindly. And God said that they would. So understand that as we get into this text today, because we, we see how in their own hearts they had this, this hatred for Jesus. But they were blind, as many have been blind down through, the, down through the generations. And this is why we continue to, to need to be the light to them. 
many people have come to know Jesus as their Messiah. Yeshua has become their Messiah in, in many cases. And they're now taking that light to the Jewish people around the world. So pray for them. Just as we were called to pray for Jerusalem and the peace of Jerusalem, we need to pray for the Jewish people today. With that in mind, then, let's, let's move on into our study. The Synoptic Gospel writers, and we haven't heard the word synoptic for a, almost a couple of years because uh, when we started, I, I mentioned the Synoptic Gospels being the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic in that they are uh, primarily, uh, their, their Gospels are based on pretty much the same material. And they share all the, the same material. And John seems to be not one of the synoptics because he doesn't begin where they begin. He doesn't uh, uh, mention much of the other things that they do. But he focuses on, on actually two groups of things. He focused, John focused on, of course, the I am statements of Jesus, the seven I am statements of Jesus that proclaims him to be de deity or God. And he focused on the seven miracles, which were the the very witness and testimony of, of the Messiah uh, in the world. So uh, that's how, how different they are. But, but nonetheless, they still do not contradict, but they only complement each other. So always remember that. But uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke joined the Apostle John here in describing the moment that the Lord Jesus delivered up his spirit unto his Father. Now Matthew and Mark both recorded the cry of Jesus in fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 1. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 46, and about the ninth hour, which would be uh, about three o'clock in the afternoon. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mark also mentions this cry of Jesus. And we expand a little bit in, in Mark's gospel by reading verses 33 through 37 of Mark 15. It says, and when the sixth hour was come, which would, have been, which would have been noon, when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, behold, he calleth Elias or Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, just as we saw last week in John's gospel, saying, let alone, let us see whether Elias or Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. The cry with a loud voice obviously would have been to tell us die, it is finished. And then Luke in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 46, records this. He says, And one of the malefactors which were hanging, uh, which, uh, I'm sorry, one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on Jesus, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has nothing, or hath nothing done, or hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour. And there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened, the veil of the temple was rent or torn in the midst, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So we know then from the synoptic gospels that Several events took place at the death of Jesus. Both Mark and Luke mentioned, or Mark and, uh, and Matthew mentioned the veil of the temple 
that was torn in two from top to bottom. It was Matthew who gave detail about an earthquake that could, took place that split rocks and opened graves from which the bodies of saints that slept arose. You can read that in Matthew 27, verses 51 and 52. But John mentions none of that. What John does mention and focuses upon is what he called the preparation. John focused on the preparation. Now back in verse 14 of this chapter, I mentioned a few weeks ago that the preparation of the Passover referred to the time that the Jewish people were to prepare the killing of the Passover lamb, which was, by the way, a type of Jesus as the Lamb of God, a type of Jesus being the true Passover lamb. So they were to prepare the killing of the Passover lamb just as they had done in Egypt before they were delivered out of the bondage of Egypt. And so they were to prepare the killing of the Passover lamb and that before the arrival of the Sabbath. But we need to understand that within the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which by the way uh, ran concurrently uh, together, that, that those two feasts, uh, were pretty much uh, celebrated at the same time. Within the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first and the last day of Passover were called High Days or Holy Days or Extra Sabbath Days. They would just declare it or God declared it as a Sabbath day. So this is not necessarily the Saturday Sabbath which at times brings about the confusion about the day on which Jesus died. The high holy day Sabbath being referred to here by John was more than likely on Thursday. And then came the regular Sabbath day on Friday. Now when I say Thursday, I'm saying Thursday in the evening because the ne- you know at, when you take the pattern of, of the days in, in Genesis chapter 1, It's the evening and the morning is the first day. So evening begins the next day. So Thursday would begin that day called the Holy Day Sabbath or the Extra Sabbath or the High Sabbath. And then came the regular Sabbath day on Friday evening and all day Saturday until sundown. And this substantiates the three days of Jesus in the tomb. But we're going to talk about that a little bit later on time. But what all of this tells us is that the religious leaders were more concerned about their traditions than they were about knowing the truth and obeying the will of God. They were more concerned about that. And so on their high holy day, now think about this, on their high holy day, they crucified and killed their own Messiah. On their high holy day, they killed their own Messiah. And yet, it was Caiaphas, their high priest, who had mentioned to them, by prophecy as the high priest, that there would be one who would die for the sins of the people. But they didn't see it. They missed it. So then you have to consider the height of hypocrisy in what they sought from Pontius Pilate. And we thought we were done with Pontius Pilate. But they bring him back in the picture. Look at verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation. We're trying to prepare ourselves to be holy before God on this very special day. Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. For that Sabbath day was a high day. So that tells us it was a separate Sabbath than the Saturday Sabbath, which would come the next day anyway. 
they besought Pilate that their legs, the legs of the criminals and Jesus on the crosses, might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the malicious hatred of the chief priests and the religious leaders toward their Messiah was still very evident. And we might wonder what they, have, what they would have done with the body of Jesus. Perhaps if left to themselves, they, they would have thrown it into a grave reserved for common criminals or even thrown it into the fire of the garbage pit known as Gehenna. But thankfully, God the Father gave them no opportunity even to touch Jesus' body, as we'll see later. Gave them no opportunity whatsoever to even touch the body of Jesus. And yet their request to Pontius Pilate was in fact twofold. First of all, they wanted to provide a bit more cruelty to Jesus' body. That can be considered just from the, the, the very hatred that they had in wanting to crucify him anyway. And secondly, it was to cry out to Pontius Pilate and tell him, listen, we need some help. Help us to wash our hands of this Jesus and allow us to move on into our holy traditions. We want to get into our holy religious traditions and we, we can't do it if, if he's hanging on the cross when the sun goes down. Help us to wash our hands like you washed yours. Think about that for a moment. Now, while breaking the legs of a crucified criminal was a common Roman practice, the religious leaders wanted to speed up the process because it was unthinkable for them that the high holy Sabbath could be desecrated by having those criminals hanging and dying on that nearby hill known as Golgotha. In violation of the law of God, in violation of Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, which I encourage you to go to and, and, and to read with me, Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 says, And if, if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, which is interesting because we know that Jesus committed no sins worthy of death. But if a man hath committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put, uh, I'm sorry, and he be to be put to death. And by the way, that's the text there. He be to be put to death, and thou hang him on, the, on a tree. Which is significant again, because we're looking at an Old Testament passage that mentions the hanging on a tree, which eventually would be the way that the Romans themselves, who were not even thought about in, in the days of Moses, would be the ones who would actually use that kind of execution for people. So all of these words are significant that they are revealing the fulfillment of the death of Christ on the cross as the word of God had predicted. And it says, thou, uh, and he be to be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree. His body, verse 23, shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. Before sundown, bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God. And remember that Jesus Christ became a curse for us. Read the book of Galatians. Jesus became a curse for us. That thy land be not defiled which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. By the way, the blood of Jesus Christ on the land was not going to defile the land. What was being, defi why the, what was being defiled was the land by the very action of the people who should have known better and should have known the truth. It was their hatred that defiled the land. So the Romans would have just left them there on their respective crosses to be ravaged and eaten by vultures and other scavengers. But the breaking of the legs of a person hanging on a cross administered a terrible shock of pain to the victim. That's the first thing that, that, that we have to understand. They would take a club and just swing that club across the, the, the sides of the knees of, of these uh, people on the cross. And that would be a lot of pain. The whole weight of the body, no longer supported by the legs, would drop down, fixing the thoracic cage so that the lungs could no longer expel the air which was inhaled. 
The reason why they broke the legs was because as long as the legs were strong, they could, they could push themselves up to breathe a little bit. And it was excruciating pain anyway. And they wanted, the Romans wanted you to, to feel the pain for as long as you live. So they just leave them there. time they would inflict more pain they would but they also knew that if they broke the legs it would speed up the process of death but death came by asphyxiation death was accelerated by asphyxiation in requesting this the religious leaders could by the way preserve the sanctity of the sabbath you see the hypocrisy of, of, of religion, any religion, without the proper heart from the God who created it and the one true God that gave us his only son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in verse 32, it says of our text, John 19, then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. Now John is speaking of himself here. And let me interject, of course, that um, when Jesus had spoken to John about Mary, Behold your mother and Mary, behold your son, that he took her into his home and took her away from the cross at that time. That was anywhere between the, 12, uh, the, um, the sixth hour and the ninth hour. So John had plenty of time to take her away and then come back to be the witness of Jesus' death. So just keep that in mind. Because he's saying, I saw. He said, he that saw it bear record. He's speaking of himself, though, in the third person. He that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, but he saith, you see, he became the eyewitness so that he could tell people so that they would believe. That ye might believe. That ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That he is the Messiah of Israel. And fulfilled every scripture pertaining to his arrival, to his coming, to his ministry, to his death, to his burial, and to his resurrection. And then he says in verses 36 and 37, For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. So understand that even Jesus, after his death, is, already, is still fulfilling scripture. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Now let's take a, just a step back for just a moment. The smashing of the lower leg bones was called in the Latin the crurifragium. And, and this caused death to occur fairly quickly by shock, loss of blood, and the inability to breathe. Since, as we said earlier, the, the chest cavity would, would bear the pressure of the body's weight after the legs were broken. In other words, if the legs were broken, they could not push up to breathe, and thus they would suffocate. So we've already explained that. But without this procedure, a person could live for many hours and even days which is not what the Jewish people wanted because they, they, they wanted to get on with their, their Sabbath festivities. So this procedure was applied to the two thieves on either side of Jesus. But in coming to the central cross where Jesus hung, the soldiers didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't break the legs of Jesus. And they did something that they weren't usually supposed to do. And that was to pierce the side of Jesus. But to make sure that he was dead, a soldier did pierce his side with a spear. But there's something that we need to remember about all of these happenings. We need to remember that Jesus said of his own life this in John chapter 10. In verse 18 he said, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. No man taketh it from me, Jesus is on the cross willingly. Jesus is on the cross purposefully doing exactly what he came to do 
on this earth. You know, in, in just a couple of months, we're, we're going to be celebrating Christmas. In fact, you know, the, the, the Christian church celebrates the incarnation of Jesus in that, in that sense. That God became flesh and dwelt among us. But we should never forget, as festive a, a time as it is, we should never forget that that person, the Son of God, came to die. That was his purpose. That was his plan. From all of eternity. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Pontius Pilate couldn't have prevented it. The Romans couldn't have prevented it. The, the, the chief priests couldn't have prevented it the way it was, it was happening, even though they were a part of this, this uh, conspiracy. Jesus was going to die for the sins of men and fulfill every scripture that pertained to it. This commandment have I received of my Father. Keep that in mind before we read the very last scripture at the end of our study. This commandment, he said, I have received of my Father. So it was Jesus then who gave his life. He dismissed his spirit before the soldier got there with his spear. Soldier didn't help out. He was already dead. And they marveled at that. Therefore, they did not break his legs. But as we've been saying, more importantly, this was fulfillment of prophecy. The Lord fulfilling prophecy even after his death. Consider something of, of great importance here. Go back to Exodus chapter 12. Well, we haven't gone there, but we've been there before. So let's go to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46. Talking about the, the lamb that was to be examined, that was part of the preparation, the examination of the lamb to make sure there was a pure lamb, there was a spotless lamb. Spotless in the sense that it was a healthy lamb, that there was nothing wrong with that lamb from, from head, to, head to hoof, you know, so, or whatever they have. Uh, anyway, I was going to say head to toe, but I don't think they have toes. But, 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 but they, they were to examine this lamb, and everything was to be perfect about this lamb. No bone was to be broken, because if it had a broken bone and, and a limp, it, it wasn't perfect. Right? So in, here in verse 46 of Exodus 12, it says, In one house shall it be eaten, speaking of the, the Passover lamb, that thou shalt not carry forth out of the flesh of brought out of the house. It needs to be eaten in that house. But then notice the last few words. Neither shall you break a bone thereof. They had to be careful not to break a bone of this lamb. Psalm 34 verse 20. In the prophecy of Jesus on the cross, he keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. On the cross, not one of his bones was broken. This is important for us to understand about the crucifixion of Jesus, as I'll explain in a moment. But understand that Jesus himself died as the sacrificial lamb of God. He was pointed out by his cousin John the Baptist who said, Behold the lamb of God, behold him who taketh away the sin of the world. Back in John chapter 1. Remember that they were not to offer a lamb that had any blemish or any spot or any broken bone. In other words, God did not want an old, sick, broken lamb that would not have represented in type the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we might well say to the Lord, you know, Lord, I've got this lamb, but, but it's got a broken leg and it's eventually going to die, so why, why don't we just make it a, sacrifice, a, a sacrificial lamb to you, Lord, you know, th th this animal, we'll, we'll give you this animal. It's going to die anyway. That's man's thinking, isn't it? What's, what's, what's the Lord's answer going to be? No way. 
Not at all. Don't give me your handoffs or your castoffs and save the best for yourselves. When you read the book of Leviticus, the last chapter of Leviticus speaks of the giving of, of tithes and, and the preparation for tithes, both of land and of, of livestock and animals. And uh, just to make this quickly, uh, or make this quick, there, there, there was, uh, in fact, this... Uh, sheepfold, as it were, or a, a, a place where the animals were to be kept, a, a, a gate was to be established for them to allow the one at a time, uh, the sheep or the whatever kind of livestock it was, to pass through that gate. And they would count. And they were told to count to the tenth one. And when they came to the tenth one, they would have a, a rod. They were, they were all to pass under the rod, the scripture tells us there in, in, in Leviticus 27. And the tenth one, the rod itself, would be dipped in, in a, a red color. And when the tenth one would pass, they would touch the tenth, and they would have that red color on them to signify that that was the Lord's. And by the way, when you read it, 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 it actually says it, it, either the healthy or, or not healthy one. But it was, that tenth was the Lord's. But that wasn't determined by the, the people in, in, you know, that, that, that owned the cattle. That wasn't what, what they determined. But then later on, people began to, you know, to kind of get smart, you know, that, as they say. And so then they would actually line up the cattle, and the, every tenth would kind of be the weakest one, and they would keep all the other ones. That's man's way of thinking and getting around the, the things of God. When you consider that, realize this, God still wants our best. God still wants the best of us, not the worst of us, the best of us. When we, we, we sing uh, hymns in church sometimes, right? Hymns should be sung. But what we sing, we, we sing the great hymns of the faith. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed us white as snow. And, and so it says of Jesus, he gave us all. And we're to do the same. But we sing songs like, I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. But what we're saying is, I surrender 10%. Or if we get really brave, we say, I surrender 20%. Or 30%. But am I surrendering all? So what A.W. Tozer once said in a book, he said, hey, listen, we need to stop singing lies in the church. We say we sing, I, I surrender all, but we're actually saying, I surrender half, some. No, we need to surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. And the great example for us is the, the, the Lord Jesus himself who surrendered all. And when Jesus tells us to take up our cross and to follow him, what is he saying? I want all of you. Because the cross represents your whole life, dying to self and living unto Christ. You see, the Lord knows the nature of man. How we're apt to cast anything off on him and save the best for ourselves. And men still do that today. So I hope that we can bear that lesson today and realize That we're to surrender, all of us and the best of us, and not give him that which is broken. Because when he blesses you with shalom, as we say every end of service, his peace is more than just peace. Shalom is more than just a a greeting and a, and a blessing when you leave someone. Shalom is a word that means God's wholeness and completeness may it be yours. Nothing broken. Nothing broken. Held together by God's love and mercy. We got to press on here because I'm getting behind.
So the piercing of Jesus' sight is quite significant in this respect. The fact that they saw the flow of blood and water that followed satisfied the soldiers that Jesus was without a doubt dead. John wanted to make that very clear. Jesus died. It also proved that Jesus had a real human body and he experienced a real death. Now John began his first letter to the church this way. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Now we all are familiar with the way John began the gospel. He said in the beginning was the logos or the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Later on he would say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten son of God, full of grace and truth. So he begins his letter to the church by saying that which was from the beginning. So very similar to the way he begins the gospel, he says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Now notice what he's describing. We've heard him, which we have seen with our eyes. We've seen him, which we have looked upon. We've gazed upon him and our hands have handled. We've touched him of the word of life. Who's the word of life? Jesus, the Logos. The Logos who became flesh and dwelt among us. For the life was manifested and we have seen it. What is John saying? Listen, he's not a ghost. He's not a phantom. He's not an apparition that comes and goes as he pleases in the sense of, of visible and then invisible. He was real for three and a half years. He was real to us. For 33 years, he was real on this earth. We have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life. Which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. He came from God. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Now understand this, your joy will never be full without Jesus Christ. Your joy will never be full without Jesus. People can claim some understanding of Jesus, some knowledge of Jesus in their head, but unless they have Jesus in their lives, unless they believe in Jesus, unless they believe that he died and shed his blood and, rose, and was buried and rose again on the third day, unless you believe the truth about Jesus Christ, your joy will never be full. There will be nothing on this earth that will make you joyful and happy, if you will, if we can use that word, but you will never be joyous and joyful without Jesus. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what you try, no matter what you receive, no matter what you have built upon in your own kingdom. Now, getting back to 1 John, by the time that, he, that John wrote this epistle, there were already false teachers in the church claiming that Jesus didn't have a true, truly human body. So they were already spiritualizing everything that Jesus had done and said. And this is why John states in the gospel record itself in verse 35, and he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that you might believe. He says, I am telling you these things so that you will believe in the only Son of God and believe in his name and receive his eternal life. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And then in verse 37, and again another, he says, another, which is the word heteros, which means another of a different kind, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now why is that significant? Because of the prophecies of bones not to be broken, we've already seen those. But as to his side being pierced, John is referring to a passage in Zechariah. And most of the time when we talk about Jesus coming and, and the Jews looking at him and saying, you know, they will see him whom they pierced when we use that scripture. You know, we usually say the hands and the side, you know, or the, the feet. But this is spe specifically speaking about the piercing on the side. 
Notice what it says in Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And remember, this is prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And they shall look upon me. Messiah is speaking. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. It is highly significant that the Hebrew word for pierced here in Zechariah, it is the word dakar, D-A-Q-A-R, dakar, peace, pierced I should say. That Hebrew word dakar was used in Zechariah's prophecy and it refers to being thrust through with a spear or a javelin, or a sword, or any such weapon, similar. But what is equally significant, and you need to understand this, equally significant and fascinating, is the fact that another Hebrew word for pierced, the word kara, K-A-R-A-H, if you want to know the... uh, um, the English equivalent. It is the one used in Psalm 22, verse 16. Which means, and that word kara means to dig or to bore through, to open with an awl and a hammer. Like a nail. Not a spear. Like a nail. And let me explain further the understanding of where the nails were placed upon Jesus. So that no bones would be broken. Because if you put nails to this part, there's bones here. And they, they were, they're small bones, and they, they would just smash and be broken in the palms of our hands. For there not to be a bone broken, it would have to be placed in the wrist area where there are two bones here, and neither bone would be broken. This is how he hung. No bone broken. The same goes for the feet were placed in such a way that no bone would be broken because the scripture had to be fulfilled to the letter. Do you see the, the wonder of God's word? Even in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Psalm 22 prophesies the crucifixion and how amazingly clear is God's word about these issues. Psalm 22, verse 16, by the way, says, For for dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced. Kara. Not Dakar. Kara. They pierced my hands and my feet. They drove the nails in places on the feet and on his hands that would not break a bone. And, and really, they did it, you know, kind of, um, you know, to be functional so that the body would not fall off of the, fall off of the, uh, the crossbeam and the, and the tree. A last thought about the piercing through of the heart. It has been argued that the phenomena indicates the immediate cause of Jesus' death, which would be a, a rupture or a breaking of the heart. And I mentioned breaking of the heart because, you know, the rupture is, is more of a, uh, you know, physiological term. <laughs> the heart ruptures under certain types of pressure. But, in fact, the picture would be that of a breaking heart or a heart broken. And it could take us from physiological to uh, emotional understanding of, of the heart of Jesus toward his people. We know when we read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, which is really when that week begins for Jesus going into Jerusalem, that he enters into, you know, before he enters, he sees Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he weeps. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who have killed the prophets. He weeps over his people. He wept uh, there at the the grave of, uh, of Lazarus because of the lack of faith, the unbelief of his people. So in, in, the, in, in the spiritual sense, his heart was already broken. 
So here is a rupture of the heart followed by a large effusion of blood into the pericardium. The thought or theory, as it were, is that the blood separated quickly into its more solid and liquid parts, which then flowed out in a mingled stream when the pericardium was penetrated by the spear. Therefore, looking, they saw water and blood. And while this is what may have happened physically, there, there are yet other things about Christ's death that has some supernatural and, and, and spiritual overtones. For John to point these things out this way, because the others don't, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't, John points this out very clearly. It brings to mind other passages that the Apostle uh, John refers to in his own writings. We can go back to 1 John chapter 5 for just a moment in verses 6 through 9, and, and we, we don't have time to go into all the details of this particular passage, but it's interesting because he says this is he, speaking of Jesus, uh, that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. Now remember, John was a witness of the water and the blood coming out of his side. And he writes even later that he, he came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Of course, but in verse 8 he says, and there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. These are the witnesses to the Messiahship and, and, and to the person and work of Jesus Christ being Messiah and accomplishing the work of Messiah on this earth. Jesus, if, you know, and, and some would believe that Jesus came by water and blood, referring the water referring to his baptism in Jordan, and when the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the same time, the Spirit descended like a dove and rested on him. This was the Father's attestation. The Father was attesting to his Son at the beginning of his ministry by water. That's one way of looking at it. <clears throat> Then, of course, the second witness would be the blood. And we, you know, the Father gave further witness as the time drew near for Jesus to die. So we know about the blood being a witness. What needs to be understood is that Jesus didn't receive his Messiahship at his baptism and lose it at the cross. No. On both occasions, the Father was witnessing to the deity of his son. The blood that was shed and the fact that he made it clear that he came to die through the water in the sense of his baptism. But it could also mean something else. It could also mean, of course, that he came in the flesh, born as we were born, from the womb of our mothers. Which, of course, you know, when you're in there, you're, you're kind of like in your own little swimming pool. And he goes on and he says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his son. But remember also, <clears throat> back in the Gospel of John, John 3 verse 5, when, when Nicodemus is, 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 uh, is, is asking Jesus about, uh, well, what, is it, what does it take to be saved and come into the kingdom of God? And Jesus in verse 5 says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Water and of the Spirit. Somewhat again, re re reference to baptism, but in this case it's not baptism, it's pretty much just what I just said about our physical birth. You've got to be born, then you have to be born again. And unless a person is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. So John has, has, has a focus on that, that the other gospel writers didn't. Because he was bearing testimony to the Messiahship of Jesus, to the deity of Jesus. The seven miracles, the seven I am statements, everything is about Jesus being God and having the power and the authority to show himself as the Messiah by the things that he did. Lastly, there was a preparation of the body of Jesus for burial. John, again, focuses on 
preparation as we read the last few verses here in verses 38 through 42. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. Now, Pilate had had enough with, you know, with the Jewish religious leaders, you know, and he was, you know, he was, I mean, he became a totally different person because of Jesus and those religious leaders. So here comes Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he goes in and he says, I want the body of Jesus. You can have him, man. You just can take him. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, who we just talked about, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, tomb, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day. For the sepulcher was nigh at hand. When you go to Israel and you go especially to uh, uh, Jerusalem, and, uh, and it's usually on our last day in, in Jerusalem that we go to a, a, a location called the Garden Tomb. And uh, it's, it's a, it's a uh, fairly nice garden that's maintained by the Anglican Church of England, and, and, and they have great guides there that talk a lot about uh, the location of, of the garden as to, the, as to the, uh, the place where Jesus had died, and they'll take you to a place where you can sit, and you look out, and right below you is a, uh, is a bus depot. I mean, there's buses everywhere, and the, the smoke and the <laughs> fumes are like, you know, but right behind the bus depot is a rock. A hill that looks like a skull. Now, they have pictures of it from the early uh, 20th century pictures of it where there were eye sockets uh, because of erosion and people doing stuff to it. You know, it looks more like, uh, like one eye, you know, like a, some alien or something, you know. It's kind of open now, but, but you can still tell where, where, where the skull uh, can be identified. And they say, we're not really, really sure, but, there, but this, this could be the very place. That could be the hill upon which the crosses were placed. And it was very close. And it was just right outside of the, of the city walls of Jerusalem. A place that could be very much the place where Jesus was buried. Now Joseph, that is mentioned here, was a rich man, a prominent member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, a good and a righteous man who didn't want Jesus put to death. But in fact, he was a secret follower of Jesus. He was from the area of Arimathea, which was about uh, 20 miles northwest of, of Jerusalem. So now he and his uh, fellow brother in Christ, Nicodemus, as it were, another secret follower of Jesus, stepped out in faith and they asked to care for the body of Jesus. You see, the Romans didn't care, as we learned earlier. They would have just left the bodies on the crosses for the birds and the wild animals, and what was left was finally put, would be finally put into a common grave. And thus they took the body of Jesus and quickly wrapped it in cloth and spices. But I believe very reverentially, reverently I should say, they wrapped it in cloth and spices and placed it in a garden tomb. And, and, and one Joseph... Uh, that had made for himself and his family the tomb itself but it was never used what we know about his usage of it of Jesus' usage of it was that it wouldn't be used for long because on the third day in the morning of the third day Jesus would rise again as he said, as he fulfilled every scripture leading up to that death, burial, and resurrection, he fulfilled the most important part. He rose again. I want to close with Isaiah chapter 53, verses 8 through 12. 
just beyond the passage that speaks of the sufferings of the Messiah, where it had said uh, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. Beyond that, though, we see in verses 8 through 12, the rest of that chapter, it says that he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation, for he was cut off out of the land of the living. To understand that phrase is to understand that what, what was being written was, who, who shall declare and who shall consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, fulfilling again another scripture. Joseph was a rich man. But just like any tomb for a human being, it would have been a tomb of the wicked because without God and without Christ in our lives, that's all we are. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Please don't get the idea that God was so pleased to bruise his own son. Not in the understanding that we have about the word pleased. The word pleased focuses on the accomplishment of what Jesus would do and what he would accomplish at the end of all of this. The pleasure was in the work that would be accomplished, not in the bruising. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Time and again here at the end of this particular chapter of Isaiah, God, through the, through the prophet, is telling us everything that Jesus came to do. He came to bear our iniquities. He came to bear our sin, to bear our travail, because he alone can satisfy the punishment of sin for God. And therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. There he was, Jesus on his cross between two other sinners, or actually two, two sinners, two other men, but who were sinners, and Jesus, the sinless one, numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins, or in this case, he bare the sin of many, because sin, here in the sense of understanding all sin, he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He interceded for you and for me on that cross. Intercession, in this case, is more than just prayer. He interceded by taking our place. We are the transgressors. He's the sacrifice. He was the substitute. He took our place. And Jesus is to be glorified and magnified and honored and praised for the things that he did for you and for me. From whom? From us. That's why we sing. That's why we praise. That's why we worship. That's why we honor and honor him alone. Because no one else did what Jesus did for us. Amen? We cannot leave here without the full understanding of who Jesus Christ is. We cannot leave here without Jesus because without Jesus you will have no fullness of joy. In spite of all that we see happening in the world today, one thing is for sure. In Christ we rejoice. In Christ we live. In Christ we move and have our being. It is in Christ that we have our victory over sin 
death, and hell. Praise Him. Rejoice. Serve Him. Acknowledge Him. And witness Him to this world.